these issues, these changes that occur that are kind of persistent, you just have to, you know, know at that time that, you know, don't let a doctor tell you you're crazy because I mean, you're not, you know, if you know, if you know, there's a change in your body, then you know, there's a change in your body. You just got to figure out and find someone that's going to sit down with you to figure out what's happening, you know? Welcome to the Live Your Fuck Yes Life podcast, your place for all things real talk and conscious conversations about shit that really fucking matters. I'm Amanda Catherine Loy, mindset coach, actor, and truth teller extraordinaire. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a thought to help you face your fears, speak your truth, and get you one step closer to living your fuck yes life. Are you ready? Here we go. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the Live Your Fuck Yes Life podcast. I'm Amanda Catherine Loy, and today I have... Truly, I think like one of the most excited I've ever been to have somebody on the podcast, not only because Dr. Tamina Rahman is here with us today and she is not only such an incredible gynecologist and like leading expert in obstetrics and women's health, um, but she's also my gynecologist and somebody that that I like truly trust and feel I've had so many in-depth conversations with you about so many of the things that I've personally navigated over the last few years since finding you. And I feel like there has not been a person I have ever connected with, and I've had many gynecologists, but also just online who speaks about this stuff in in such a tangible way and a way that feels friendly and, oh, uh, and so accessible, much. you know? Oh, thank you so much. Um, and so I'm just really excited to have you here and have you chat about all things fucking vaginal health, cervical health and beyond. Yeah. So, yeah. The podcast. Awesome. <clears throat> thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Amanda's one of my favorite patients too. So oh, <laughs> I will take that compliment. You know, it's so yeah. funny because I originally found you because my, uh, my family doctor, I guess if you call her that, um, recommended you when I found out that I had the BRCA gene and she was like, she is super, super up to speed on all of this stuff. And I remember feeling so lost at that time and just really not knowing, especially how to navigate my hormonal health side of things. That was a really big concern of mine um, because I was on the pill And, you know, when I came into your office, I was like, I think I want to go off the pill. And so we talked a lot about what that meant. And I just felt so supported in that, in that experience, because you actually understood what my unique experience in that space was, that it was, you know, not like a typical human who has the bracket, how to navigate that, you know, Um, I felt so seen. And since then, I just have continued to feel so seen, especially in the context of like, you know, sexual health and all of that stuff, especially as I've come out as queer and as non-monogamous and you have been nothing sure. but amazing in that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank and you. No, I mean, and, you know, asking all those questions. So I just, first of all, I want to say thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. Like I said, you're very, very awesome to work with. And um, no, but that's always a goal of mine is to make sure that you like actually hear a patient and not just paternalistically tell the patient what to do or you know each patient is unique whereas some people might need to stay on pills or not you know this was a personal decision that we made together so um I don't I don't want to divulge too much because of HIPAA so whatever you want to say no totally but I won't say no, but I appreciate that. And I, I mean yeah we can definitely talk about some things on here of my own personal journey but I'm curious before we get into that what what like why this path for you? We've never talked about this and I'm so curious like what about 
what about this direction in terms of getting into vaginal health and, and you know, gynecology specifically, but you focus so much on really specific sections of this, you know, field. Yeah. Like why, why is it so important to you? I, I guess, um, you know, I, I think from like college onwards, like women's health and women's empowerment was something that I always felt strongly about. So I was like, a, I, I minored in women's studies. And so I worked with rape victims in college and all these things. So it was always issues related to like, especially violence around women and trying to give them back, you know, their voice. So that was something that I initially was very like interested in. And I think also just coming from my own background, um, you know, there's so many issues that are so taboo culturally, like, you know, across the board. I mean, we live in a patriarchal society, obviously. And, you know, I grew up, you know, uh, daughter of immigrants who didn't talk about a lot of things around sexual health and sexual medicine or vaginal health or periods or cervix or anything, right? So for me, I felt like um, once I decided to open up my own practice, um, I really wanted to be there, you know, not only just, you know, obviously as a physician to help the patients along, but just like as an educator too, because I feel like, you know, the only way for us to get optimal health is to really feel empowered about our own health. And if we can't, if there are issues that we can't talk about because that doctor, you know, didn't either know enough about, you know, that aspect of sexual medicine or didn't feel comfortable enough, or maybe, you know, there are physicians who, you know, will show some sort of um, stigmatization against, you know, you know, polyamorous relationships or whatever the case may be, you know, there are people that can't separate themselves or their beliefs from, you know, whatever, and aren't open to it. And so for me, I was like, I want to, I want to have a space that, you know, you know, overall cultural sensitivity, whatever culture that means for you is something and, and respond to the patient and really just listen, because I've been in, I've worked in academics before where I've been in busy practices. And when I was still delivering babies, it was like, you know, you had to see 35, 40 patients a day. And for me, I was like, no, I want to hone down. I want to focus on issues that um, really impact women that, you know, women feel vulnerable to and really, you know, help them to like take some of those things back and empower themselves. So I think for me, that was a driving force. I have two girls. I don't want them ever to grow up with stigmas that, you know, can be debilitating for a lot of people, whether it's around periods or you know, cervix health, cervical health, vaginal health, sexual health, whatever the case may be. So um, that was something I always felt passionate about. And I think that, you know, language and education is power. So the more that you have under your belt and more not, that's why I don't get totally offended when people come in with their Google information. Like they'll come in with a lot of misinformation Yeah. and they'll say, look, I have this information. And I'm like, you know what, first of all, I, you know, knowledge and I, you know, I, I thank you for doing research on your own health because you know, it's important for us to, nobody knows your body better than you do, you know? And like, sometimes a patient, you know, and this was very much the case in OB when patients were like, I don't feel like something is right. Nine times out of 10, they were right. You know, you have to listen to, and people don't listen to women. They don't listen to women of color. They don't listen to, you know, when it comes to pain, when it comes to pregnancies, whatever. And so, you know, if you can't first listen to your patient and understand where they're coming from, then I just, I think that you're coming at it the wrong way. <laughs> I completely agree. You know? For the record, as somebody who has, you know, been a part of your, your personal practice that you run, it, I have definitely felt that, that, that oh, safety, that inclusivity, that um, just feeling like I can just be fully myself and, and ask questions that are thoughtful and actually get thoughtful responses and a kind oh. responses. What a concept in a doctor's <laughs> environment. Truly. So I think that's a really rare thing 
period. Um, and I know a lot of people struggle with that. So I think you are doing exactly what you set out to do. So that's me. Oh, thank you so much. And I think, you know, I don't want to poo-poo on other doctors. Some of them work for big organizations and, and yeah. they have no, you know, a lot of them are like begging for less, you know, yeah. paperwork or less this, but they can't give the patient what they need. And at the end of the day, you know, it's like, what's the bottom line? Let me just take care of this issue. And, you oh. know, yeah. so, you know, I'm not, but, you know, I have the luxury, I guess, of being able to practice medicine the way I want. Yeah. And what a gift. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious because I feel like there are so many areas we could talk about when it comes to mm -hmm. vaginal sexual health. I'm curious, what do, what are kind of like the two, three most uh, massive things that you experience on the day-to-day -day that A, there's a stigma around or a lack of knowledge around and B, that you see pop up the most? Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, for me, like a lot of issues around sexual pain come up a lot, but that's just because that's sort of my little niche niche area that I, you know, work with women with sexual dysfunction. So whether it's libido issues, orgasm issues, or sexual pain, there's a lot of stigmatization around that and whether or not you should just push through the pain or this is normal, this is not normal. First of all, it's not normal to have pain with sex. I'll just come out and say that. <laughs> Secondly, it can be common, but it's not normal. And so, you know, uh, common for me, at least for, cause I see it a lot in my office, but, um, you know, that's something that should be addressed. I think issues around um, HPV are very rampant. I mean, we, we do colposcopies daily. Um, and we, you know, I think counsel daily, you know, between myself and, you know, my nurse practitioner who sees a lot of my annuals, do a lot of counseling around that. Um, and then, you know, anything vaginal vulvar health related in terms of um, whether or not it's like, discharge itching, you know, um, retain products in the vagina, like, you know, you name it, I think, but, but, so, you know, the concerns around vulvar and vaginal hygiene are always something that come up and it either leading to, you know, vulvar dermatoses that I see a lot of, like so some, some really um, uh, specific diseases related to the vulvar skin, or, you know, obviously infectious diseases around the vulvar vaginal skin. Right. Okay, so let's break those up. let's break those down because actually a lot of those covered questions I was like wanting to talk to you about. Okay, um, awesome. Mm -hmm. Because I think pelvic pain or just pain with intercourse is something that mm -hmm. I don't think anybody really fucking talks about with a lot, and yeah. you focus on it so intensely, which I think is amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And I personally, um, you know, have struggled with some pelvic floor, you know, tightness myself. Mm -hmm. And I remember when it first started happening, it was pretty minor for me. But when it first started happening, I was like, what is wrong? You know, mm -hmm. like this hurts when I'm experiencing penetration in a way that it didn't before. And does this right. mean that this person doesn't fit anymore in my body yeah. or that my body's doing something crazy weird? And like, why would yeah. this be happening? And yeah. I remember asking so many questions and immediately just being like, there's no resources on this. Nobody's talking about this. And I went into your office and I immediately felt so much better. Oh, um, thank you so much. So I'm curious, like, what are some causes that, you know, of pelvic of pain? Section. Yeah. Because if you're saying section, yeah. section hurt, but a lot of people experience that. Like, yeah. why? Well, it's funny because a lot of people will say, oh, I think I'm just with a bigger partner. But I just want to emphasize that a baby's head comes out of the vagina. Yeah. So it's very pliable, right? Like, so if you tell me your partner's big and that's why you're having sex, like, don't flatter him. Like, yeah. that's not <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I'm like, no, you're, if a baby's head can pop out of there, you your could, vagina yeah. should be malleable <laughs> to a little bitty, whatever. So anyway, um, yeah, no, there's a lot of things that can cause, you know, pelvic pain and sexual pain. And you know, some of it, obviously, you look at like acute or recent things, like whether or not it's infectious or, um, you know, 
we deal a lot of with pelvic floor dysfunction. So you have to think of your vagina as a canal. And so there's a layer of muscles that support it between the vagina and the rectum. And so some people, you know, hold a lot of their anxiety or, you know, anxiety levels are crazy higher. Right now that's why I think I'm seeing a lot more pelvic floor dysfunction as well because of all the uncertainty that we're dealing with. And so, um, you know, some people will hold their anxiety in their pelvic floor. And so the, the muscles become like really high in tone. Um, and, you know, you can have weak muscles, but high tone, which is, you know, sometimes can be confusing for some people. But, you know, obviously the pelvic floor muscles, if the tone is high, what happens is um, there's the, a lot of people will get pain with initial entry and deep penetration. So those two things you always have to differentiate. So if you're seeing someone about sexual pain, they should be asking you at what point you experience it. Because mm -hmm. sexual pain can be initial entry, which usually has to do with the vestibule. The vestibule is the area from the like inner labia menorah. I should get my vulvar puppet and show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have a vulvar puppet. <laughs> all of my vulvar puppet. listening to the <laughs> podcast, I highly recommend you watch the YouTube too so you can see this. I see my little puppet. Um, it's from vulva, vulva, Vulvolutionary. I forget where I got it from, but no, I just dropped half of my volume. Um, and so, you know, this is your clitoral hood. This is the clitoris, the urethra, the little flower that you're peeing from. So this is the labia majora, and this is the labia minora. And the area between the smaller lips and basically what your hymenal remnant kind of entails going up through the urethra, this whole area is called the vestibule, and it's lined with estrogen and androgen receptors. So sometimes you can have a hormonal reason. So, you know, one big thing that some people don't realize is that birth control can give you pain with sex. So the pill, oh, at least, not, not the IUD. Yeah, I so not know that. That's a whole lecture we can give. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, because a lot, of the, a lot of the point of some of the birth control pills is to diminish your androgen levels. And so some people have some potentially receptor defects here that can cause them to have this vestibular pain where the, this tissue becomes really thinned out or red. And so you can get pain with sex because of like hormonal reasons. And that's why people postmenopausal have that. Um, they'll have pain with sex because they have this estrogen and androgen deficiency and it causes this whole tissue and your labia will regress. So you become have a, like almost like you've had a labiaplasty. The labia becomes small, the clitoris will shrink, you know, and so you'll have all these an anatomic changes of the vulvar area related to birth control pills potentially. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. A lot of people can get um, with the pelvic floor dysfunction, these nerves here in this in this bottom part. I can start firing a lot and get sensitive because the tone of the pelvic floor muscles that kind of lead into them will be so high that they'll get lactic acid buildup. And basically these muscles um, will cause these nerves to kind of fire all the time. And you get that pain based on that. Um, and then, so that's, and then you can also get like um, a proliferation of nerves, either from inflammation or congenital reasons. Um, and that caused what we call provoked vestibulodynia, where you get pain upon initial entry. And then deep penetrative pain is usually related to either um, anatomic issues, like some people will have um, their uterus and fibroids that are kind of pushing down here. Some yeah. people will have endometriosis, which is another condition that can cause chronic pelvic pain, yeah. but also leads to pain with uh, sex with deep penetration, also um, really have uh, painful periods potentially. And then... Um, um, you know, uh, oh, and then just pelvic floor dysfunction can be another, another real big reason for deep penetrative pain. So, um, you know, the, 
there's obviously other reasons, infectious, et cetera, that we can talk yeah. about, but those are some of the big ones that I always see in my office. So the deep penetration one, would that be, you know, like, I think colloquially you hear people say like, oh, you're touching my cervix. That hurts. Like that's, yeah. I, I remember like saying that being like, nope, uh-huh. nope, you went too far. You know, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Is yeah. that actually what's happening in the context? I mean, it can't, there, there could be, I mean, if you have some inflammation on your cervix or like, um, you know, with endometriosis, which is what we see it sometimes as you can get these. And so endometriosis is when cells from the lining of your uterus or the endometrium end up implanted outside of it. So it's usually, um, a condition related to, um, uh, it's like a, um, uh, condition that you can get, um, acquired because it's a family, family history and, and other reasons. Yeah. But basically, um, when you get these implants, you can get them on the back wall of the vagina, like the, either the the back aspect of the uterus or in the, what we call the posterior cul-de-sac, which is, you know, where you might hit up against. And so you might get, you might actually be hitting some endometrial implants. Um, it could be uh, the way the endometriosis has changed the anatomy and makes, you know, the cervix kind of stuck back, uh, stuck in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, just, and again, some pelvic floor muscle issues can, because of the increased tone, you can have, you're actually hitting against, you know, like a tight band or something yeah. like that. So, um, but some people do have cervical sensitivity and, you know, when people, when women orgasm, like obviously there's orgasms that are clitor related. They're also, also, um, you know, with, uh, people can have, um, contractions in the uterus and you'll see it in like cervical areas too. So, So that's why some people that even have procedures on their cervix can get compromised sexual function related to that. Interesting. So I'm curious in terms of um, like when we're having these feelings or not knowing necessarily why, like what would you recommend if someone's like, I'm definitely having pain with, with intercourse. I'm not sure if it's external, internal, pelvic pain or what, like obviously go to see a gynecologist, I would probably say would be your, your number one recommendation. But like, is there something we can do to so if you're saying a lot of our anxiety can be held there, like, is there, is there something that we can do to on our own support ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Great. I mean, and so, you know, like, um, well, some women have a condition called vaginismus where it's not, you know, it is a sort of form of pelvic floor dysfunction, but it's actually like almost a phobic reaction of your vagina. Like, so you have almost a fear of penetration. And so as you're about to get penetrated, um, your pelvic floor muscles yeah. tense up. And so you're actually hitting people, uh, the partner, always like, oh, I'm hitting a wall, but you're actually hitting, like, you're not even getting all the way in. Uh, there can also be hymenal issues related. So that's always something you have to look at too. But um, I would say that like, you know, yoga or other techniques where you're learning to, you know, diaphragmatically breathe. So you're kind of releasing that tension off the pelvic floor. You know, we always send people to pelvic floor therapy to learn how to do, you know, different exercises. Um, not to tighten it or to strengthen, to strengthen it, obviously to kind of like release it and relax it. So, I mean, anything that you can do to kind of allay your anxiety and, you know, really breathe through the diaphragm, practice breathing techniques that might help some people that are kind of behind the eight ball where you're, you know, you're sucking it up for years and years. They might already have a lot of issues that, you know, really need to be addressed by someone that can do it. And not every, I would say, gynecologist or urologist or, you know, family practice doctor or whatever is really well versed in the latest and greatest in terms of that. So you got to find someone with a special interest in it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, there were a lot of questions around that in my Patreon page too. So I'm glad we covered all of that. Okay. Okay. So, second thing you said was around HPV and how prevalent you see that to be, which 
honestly, until this year, I hadn't really heard about that. And I also mm-hmm. found it really interesting because we were talking about this. You know, I, I think I don't think I've ever had someone on here talk about pap smears or how often we should be getting them and the importance mm-hmm. of them and how often they come back abnormally. So I've been talking about this with my girlfriends the last couple of years a little bit more, and it's made me so surprised to hear how many people have gotten abnormal paps. Like, I didn't think that was a thing. Turns out it's totally a thing. And yeah. remember me telling you about that and be like, I didn't know this was a thing. You're like, oh yeah, it's a thing all the time. So yeah. <laughs> can we just talk about that? Because I think there's sure. a taboo around that in and of itself. Oh, for sure. And I feel like people don't even know why they're getting pap smears half the time. So, you know, the cervix where's my other okay it's in the other room but I was gonna show like the uterus and the cervix the cervix is sort of the neck of the uterus and so the cells in the cervix um you know like they rapidly change from one cell type to another and so HPV or the virus that can integrate in there and cause those changes to accelerate and then lead to dysplasia and eventually you know cancer years down the line so the whole purpose of a pap smear is to screen for cervical cancer and that's why it's like cervical cancer in America is down to like number like fourth biggest cancer for women as opposed to like you know it's higher worldwide so i think that you know that's one important thing to you know note is that it's a screening tool and so we screen women for cervical cancer and we know that a large majority of cervical cancers are caused by hpv which is a very rampant virus and there's you know hundreds of subtypes at this point um and so but the two, the two, there's two main subtypes that probably cause, uh, I want to say like 70% of all cervical cancers and, and their number 16 and 18. And so those are the ones that are included in a vaccine, which if you haven't gotten and you're 45 or younger, you'll still get coverage by insurance to, to get that. But, um, you know, I think people don't talk about it because, you know, people just assume you go to the gynecologist and, you know, you get this pap smear and they think every time you go, you're getting a pap smear, but a pap smear specifically is like for an annual exam. It's a preventative test that we do and it's a screening test. So we're screening the cells of the cervix to see what's normal and abnormal, but it's not a definitive test. That's why we do those follow-up studies. And I think um, one of the big things to note is that HPV is a skin to skin contact thing. So you can get genital warts, you can get, um, you know, regular skin warts, uh, it can cause, you know, cervical dysplasia, which leads to cervical cancer. Um, and, and so um, condoms are not 100% preventative, which is the bummer of it all, because I'll have patients that'll come in. And, you know, sometimes it's really sad when a patient has sex for the first time and gets HPV right away, and it's a high risk HPV. And they, you yeah. know, so you have to kind of like help them navigate that. But, um, you know, in general, we start pap smear screening at age 21, regardless of if you're having sex at 16 or not. So right. 21 is when we're doing it. We used to overscreen people for pap smear. So it's like age 21 and then pretty much three years if it's normal. So it's like an every three years. Okay, so yeah, that's what I remember being told was like, you don't really need to come back in yeah. every three years. So question though, because I think if, if it is considered under the STI uh, groupings, then mm-hmm. why, so if someone's having, you know, monogamous sex with the same person and nobody's having, you know, sex externally to those, maybe it's less important, but if somebody's dating or potentially in a non-monogamous situation, would you recommend getting that done more frequently? I, that's when I'll adjust it. Actually, if someone says, you know what, I had a few extra partners this year. Do you think I need it? I said, well, any new partner you get can give you HPV. So I have, I have a feeling that it's probably going to, the pendulum is going to swing back a little bit where, you know, it's going to be patient dependent, but in theory, I think because, um, you know, it takes, 
a certain amount of time to clear HPV from your system or to even really get incorporated. And it's not all, even if you get exposed, doesn't mean that it's gonna cause changes in the cells of your cervix unless, you know, um, there's other things potentially happening. But for me, I do, I do discuss that with my patients. I'm like, well, you had a couple of new partners, it's been two years. Technically you could wait another year, but it's possible that you have HPV from these new exposures. Um, and your, and your insurance usually covers it yearly regardless. Yeah. So then sometimes we'll do it. And, and, you know, I would say like eight times out of 10, I'll find HPV in those patients. Yeah. So, um, interesting. Cause I, I would say that like, I, the reason I asked that question is because I think that most people, there's like blanket statements, right. That we see like how often to get your pap or, you know, how often to get STI testing or even that we don't even have a blanket statement around to be frank. But at the end of the day, it's like, so often we don't ask questions specific to us. We just go in and do the thing. And yeah, I, I mean, I have to say that like, I've been in the non-monogamy space for almost three years now, and I hadn't even thought about getting, you know, a, a pap since my last one, you know, like yeah. I was like, yeah. yeah, every three years, every two years, like yeah. I didn't think to yeah. ask that question. So yeah. I think just even knowing how to advocate for yourself in the space around this stuff is huge. Yeah. Totally. And I would say like, if, if that's, you know, a concern, I mean, I have patients that, you know, just feel like they're so scared of HPV that they're just like, I know I'm not supposed to have it for another two years. Can, will you do it? Yeah. I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll counsel them on it, but I'm not going to be like, no, I won't do your path. You know, you have to also just, you know, each it's, it's not so algorithmic. I mean, there are algorithms out there, but I don't believe in total algorithm medicine. You have to really take into consideration each patient. Yeah. So I'm curious because you said you see so many people with HPV, like that indicates to me that it's pretty fucking common. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the prevalence rates are kind of, I have to see what the latest studies are, but I mean, I would say like, you know, I think something like 80% of women will probably get exposed to it in their lifetime, whether or not they have abnormal paps is another thing, but you know, the exposure rates are pretty high. So I think that, you know, and sometimes we'll see it all of a sudden show up in a pregnant woman. Maybe she's a little immunocompromised and all of a sudden you'll see her. I mean, there is some thought that maybe there are some HPVs that are reactivated too, because someone will go years without, you know, uh, and they'll have a negative HPV for years. And then all of a sudden same partner and they have HPV and they didn't have it before that. Or, you know, so there's all these like mysterious things that tend to happen that we can only believe that there's probably some forms of HPV that are reactivated and we don't, it's not necessarily like a herpetic virus or herpes virus that sits in your neurons and, you know, uh, waits to come out. But, you know, there is some thought that, you know, there's probably some reactivation that occurs. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because I think there's such a stigma attached to it. And yet most people mm-hmm. have it. In some capacity. Right. And also, right. isn't it true that like there's a, there's an HPV vaccine now for not just women, right? It's for men too. Well, and you know, and actually it's recommended for boys and girls. Like I think it's starting at age 11, I want to say, but um, the goal would be to get them to get it even before they start sexual activity. Right. So, you know, when you go to your pediatric appointment, um, I have a 10 year old, so I'm sure it's coming up for him when he turns 11. Um, you know, I'm sure I'll have a discussion around, you know, potentially, I think it's 11 or 12. I can't remember exactly, but you know, whether or not you should go ahead and vaccinate and then some people don't want to vaccinate their boys because boys can't get HPV. Well, they can certainly get it and they can certainly carry it. You know, we know that HPV can is associated with some laryngeal or pharyngeal cancers. Um, we know that, um, you know, men with, you know, um, foreskin can get penile cancer from it. You can get anal cancer from it. So, I mean, it's, 
and, and I think it's very selfish for someone to say, well, my son, I have sons, I'm not going to give them the vaccine, you know, they're not going to, you know, you should do it to protect the women that they're going to have sex with, you know, totally. like, because yeah. nine times, you know, it's not like we're, we can't, there's no good way to screen a man for HPV these days, Just unless it's it. like, <laughs> it's yeah, so yeah, I yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I, everyone's like, can you test my blood? I'm like, you know, they haven't figured that out yet. So, you know, like, we'll just wait for them to come up with that. Um, obviously men who have sex with men, there are anal paps that can be done for them. And I think, you know, eventually we're going to find some way to screen orally for them, but you know, that's yeah. not something that I know much about at this point. Yeah. And I just think that's so important to just know your status and mm-hmm. be able to, you know, maintain. So if, if a, a pap does come back abnormally, no matter what the level is, obviously there are different like ways to, to navigate that if it's low risk, high risk and stuff, but it say it's a low mm-hmm. risk that comes back. A lot of it's about the immunity at the end of the day is my understanding. Right. So what, mm-hmm. what are some- And age related. Cause we know that younger girls um, will get it and they'll turn it over more rapidly, more than likely. So like 25 or younger, we tend to just watch the, the, um, on a year to year basis, we'll watch with PAPS. Um, and then, you know, a discussion happens if it's persistent for two or three years, mm-hmm. but, um, for 25 or older and, you know, and after 30, we even start, you know, checking all HPV, but for 25 and older, then we start looking at colposcopy, which is where, you know, we look with a microscope after adding some acetic acid or vinegar, it helps to light up the areas that are abnormal. <clears throat> and you can get tissue samples and the tissue will tell us, you know, um, a little more definitively, like how it's affecting your cervix. Yeah. And so based on that grade level, you know, how the follow-up is. So what's something that you can do to, on your own time, naturally just maintain your cervical health? You know, I think that, you know, just, you know, making sure I mean, just in general, like it's when we're thinking about even COVID and immunity, you got to think about what the ways that we can make ourselves the healthiest. And so healthiest is really just maintaining a good sleep cycle, you know, making sure that, um, you know, we keep our vitamin C, vitamin D levels good. We know that those are important for immunity. Um, I mean, I'll tell an interesting story because I wouldn't have believed this, but the reason I know it's so interesting about the the whole immunity thing is I I had a patient who... um, you know, I had an abnormal pap. She ended up with this procedure called a leap because it was like a high grade issue. Um, and so, you know, we were concerned about it developing the cancer. So we removed the whole area of abnormality. And then, you know, upon her repeat follow-up, it seemed to be persistent. And she, you know, um, was concerned because, you know, she wanted to make sure that, um, you know, you know, obviously these procedures can compromise, um, potentially affect, you know, pregnancies in the future and stuff, which is a different discussion. But, you know, because of that, she really, even after having a second opinion with an oncologist, um, wanted to discuss the option of, you know, a way to help her immunity or, you know, um, use, basically she used acupuncture. And and you have to go to the right acupuncturist that's really trained in like the 3000 year old, you know, medicine that's been around forever. Right. Um, But, you know, there are some really good ones in Chicago. And so um, she did go to one and she did, you know, whatever supplement, you know, acupuncture therapy that they had in supplements that she used for about three months. And I was so surprised that when she came in for her pap, it was cleared. Her HPV was like, what? You had a high risk HPV. But that goes to show you that, you know, the immunity factor is pretty significant. I mean, you know, some people might say, oh, it was a false positive or whatever. But the fact of the matter is she had persistent HPV. And we know that acupuncture 
definitely there's space for it in Eastern medicine. There's definitely some space for it even uh, here. So I think that that's important to say. One we know um, but, stress is also such a huge component to any yes, persistent exactly. stuff. And I mean, exactly. acupuncture is one of the many tools that we can help to reduce stress in our bodies and literally right. in our cells. So I yeah. Mean, and exercise that. and, you know, you talk about anti-inflammation and all these things. I mean, there's uh, so many things, but yeah, stress is a huge inhibitor of, of your immunity. So we got to make sure that that's under control too. Yeah. I love that story. Okay. And then the third one that you brought up was, you know, discharge or something, something weird is happening in my vagina help. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which I think, Uh again, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about, you know, so like, and and what is even normal? I I guess that's my big question. Like what is normal when it comes to vaginal health in that space? I mean, it's what's kind of like what's normal for you. Some people, have a little bit more discharge than average. I mean, every woman, if they're not on anything that suppresses ovulation, will have an increased discharge in the middle of their month. Um, and you so that's you know, like birth control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the IUD doesn't suppress ovulation. It works in different ways. So someone that's on basically birth control pills or the, the ring or whatever that might be, you know, suppressing ovulation, um, you know, they might not have these you know, significant changes uh, in terms of like that you get when you ovulate, but that's sort of like normal physiologic discharge that women have. And then what you worry about. And so, you know, you always hear, and and a lot of us gynecologists are very like anti this, you know, feminine hygiene industry, because there's so much out there that says your vaginas smell like roses or whatever, you know, it's like a billion dollar industry. Literally you go to CVS, like everything you want to put in your vagina can be very dangerous actually. And I've seen so many people get like, you know, bacterial vaginosis or they'll get these recurrent allergic reactions and get some vulvar dermatoses. But at the end of the day, we always say the vagina is a self-cleaning organ, use warm water and call it a day. But if after using that, you still have either a, a persistent itch or a foul smelling discharge or green yellow discharge that wasn't there or, you know, mid-cycle bleeding or, you know, um, uh, any kind of like irritation in general or burning sensation down there. Obviously, those are reasons that you need to get evaluated. And it could be infectious, it could be inflammatory, you know, so I think that that is something um, significant. I also think we we don't always talk about like vulvar health. And, you know, sometimes people use these wipes, and they think it's okay. But what happens is, you know, you can either develop, sometimes you'll develop an allergic reaction. Sometimes you put the wipe in a little too far and it gets, it changes the bacteria in the vagina and causes like these BV infections. So, you know, you really have to watch some of these products out. Um, There was a lot uh, of um, noise recently because, you know, Vagisil put out this OMV product, which is targeted to teenage girls. I don't know if it's like, oh, my vagina or what, but, (laughs) but it's like, it's like targeted to teenage girls. So you don't have this period funk and that you can oh. like smell like, you know, creamsicles is what, it, what I think oh, I read. But no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we all had a lot to say about that, but you know, like, you know, teenage girls are so, you know, we're insecure anyway. Right. And we're so worried about, you know, this period issue coming and going and it's not regular. When you're a teenager about that. We're told like, Ooh, you're gross when you're on your period. Yes. Like, I don't want to go down on you when you're on your period. Yes. Partners have said yeah. that to other people in the past. You yeah. Know, like, I'm not going to have sex stuff. with you when you're on your period. Right. Yeah. Like, and all this stuff or even just like, mm, you taste funky, like that fishy mm-hmm. smell, like mm-hmm. there's so much that's perpetuated around the vagina that it's like, we're yeah. so hypersensitive to that already. Oh yeah. Products are going to, speak to us and be like, yeah, 
So yeah. why are those products bad? Is it because of a, from a pH level? Like it, if it imbalances that, that can cause, you know, a slew of things. At the end yeah. Of the- I mean, basically you have a healthy amount of bacteria in your vagina that keeps the normal amount of discharge that you should have. And so, you know, sometimes there's a shift in the pH and, you know, the vagina is normally acidic, but it becomes too basic. Um, you can get an overgrowth of some bad bacteria that can cause the foul smell, the fishy odor. Um, you can get, you know, different infections. Some people will use it in their urinary tract issues and, and they'll just develop infections related to it. Um, some people use it on their vulvar area and, you know, you're, you, you might actually have like a yeast infection going on. You're using this wipe to help you and it's just causing more skin irritation and going to exaggerate it. And maybe you'll get like a, um, uh, a lichenoid, you know, which is like a inflammation of the vulva and, you know, inflammatory ideology of, or inflammatory dermatoses, basically. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, these things are, are not safe. A lot, they said gynecologist approved or tested. Um, and, you know, until you show me the data, I can't believe you. you know percent. Show me the evidence. Well, but I appreciate you saying that because I think, you know, we are, we are, it's like any industry. We are just so mm-hmm. propelled with these messages that are not mm-hmm. actually backed up with any, any fact or anything that's actually yes. for ourselves. And so it makes it being an advocate for ourselves really hard. And you said at the beginning, right. you know, the most important thing is that, you know, what your body needs, you know, at the end of the day, but we've been so programmed right. to, to question that all yes. the time that it's sometimes yes. hard to know. And this was the biggest question that came up in my Patreon page with mm-hmm. my incredible humans. And it was just like, how, how do you even know what to be aware of? Like, what are signs, what are symptoms that, that might make us aware that something's wrong or off or that we should go in? Um, mm-hmm. What should we ask for when we are advocating for our, our you know, sexual health or vaginal health when we are in our doctor's offices, like that was mm-hmm. far and above, like a question after question after question. So I'm curious, like from your standpoint, like what are the big things in that space? I would say, uh, I mean, around period health, you know, like um, it's not normal not to have a period, you know, unless you're trying to suppress it with birth control pills or something, right? So if you're not getting a period that's regular, I mean, some people will have 28 days period cycles, some people will have 35, some people will have 40, and that might be normal for them. But if things change, especially over a three to six month period of time, uh, you know, you got to get that evaluated. I mean, pain with periods, excessive pain specifically, but you know, really pain with periods, you know, it's causing me not to go to school, it's causing me not to be able to work. That's not normal. You got to get that checked out. Like, don't suck that up. You know, like people are like, oh, suck it up. It's just pain with your period. Now, sometimes that can be a sign of endometriosis or fibroids or, um, you know, adenomyosis or other conditions that, you know, need to be treated earlier rather than later. Um, you know, sort of any, any kind of pelvic pain that, you know, causes you, like you can get some transient pains in your cycle, or maybe you'll get a mid-cycle pain when you ovulate or something like that. But anything that's concerning that's causing you, you know, significant pain that's persistent, you know, you want to get that evaluated. You don't want to get to a point where you get chronic pelvic pain and all of a sudden all your, you know, nerves are talking to each other and you're getting what we call peripheral pain related to that, or maybe it becomes centralized pain and you're in pain all the time. I mean, that's how people end up in a chronic pain cycle and they end up with depression and anxiety. So, you know, you got to go early. You got to find someone that's going to listen to you first and, and try to talk to you about this. Um, discharge, we talked about, you know, like abnormal discharge. Some people, leave, you'd be surprised at how many people leave in a tampon and they come in because they think they have like a BV infection or just, you know, they're a little bit, they feel like there's a little bit of an odor. And 
they have a tampon in from their last cycle, you know, and it's very common. So don't feel bad about it. If it happens. Oh my God. I'm, always, I'm always like, Oh, I got to pull that thing out. And it, you know, it comes out like, you know, putrid smell because it's been, you know, stuck in the vagina for so yeah. long. Yeah. So, I mean, you gotta, you know, that's something to, you know, always think about if there's an abnormal smell that's changing discharge color, that's changing, um, itching, burning, you know, issues around the urinary tract, tract with Reverend burning, you know, you're not able to empty your bladder completely going too frequently and you're, it's not like you're drinking more water because, and that's why it's happening. I mean, these issues, these changes that occur that are kind of persistent, you just have to, you know, know at that time that, you know, don't let a doctor tell you you're crazy. Cause I mean, you're not, you know, if you know, if you know, there's a change in your body, then you know, there's a change in your body. You just got to figure out and find someone that's going to sit down with you to figure out what's happening, you know? Yeah. Um, and the pain with sex is that's not normal. I mean, uh, we talk about a hypoactive sexual desire disorder. That's when, you know, your libido is so low that it affects how you feel about yourself. It affects your relationship. Mm-hmm. So though we actually have treatments for that now. Like there's been some changes in sexual medicine where we can talk about like treating, you know, a low libido that causes distress. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Everyone's libido changes throughout the, you know, for months at a time. It's not like everyone wants to do it all the time, but if it's causing you distress, you should address it. You know, it's like making me feel bad about myself or my relationship is sucky because my partner wants to do it all the time. And I don't, those, that's a reason to seek help because there is help for it. Um, I think a lot of people think, oh man, there's no help for sexual pain or there's no help for my low libido or, you know, there are issues around arousal too. Like some people have persistent arousal where you think, you know, everyone's like, oh, that must be great. No, it's awful. And people are, can be suicidal from it because they have this basically nerve problem that's causing them to always feel like, you know, aroused and they can't really get rid of it so that's called persistent genital arousal disorder and that's that's a problem for a lot of people and so these issues you know even orgasm issues that come up that cause distress they should be addressed so i would at the end of the day say like if something is off with you and it's concerning address it you know like Uh you should know your you know your body you know how you feel about yourself about your sexuality about your menstrual cycle about your vaginal health you should address it I think at the end of the day, that's maybe the biggest takeaway of today. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we are so taught to not trust, especially as women, to not trust that when something feels off to listen Mm -hmm. and to advocate for ourselves and say, hey, like this, I'm experiencing this and I need to talk about it openly because we're told it's taboo. Mm -hmm. We're told we should just suck it up and deal with it, that it's normal Mm -hmm. to have all this pain. And I hope that all of you listening or watching are having a lot of your brain like fire and saying, yeah, Yeah. you know what? Like I need to advocate more for myself. I can trust that when this is, you know, even if I'm totally off and nothing is actually wrong, what does the harm of going in and getting checked out? You know, Um, at the end of the day, I would always rather be safe than sorry. And if there's anything that my journey with Braca has taught me, it's advocate, advocate, advocate for yourself. No, and you know, get them dealt with, you know, in the way that mm-hmm. feels most aligned to you. Um, and I find someone that listens to you, right? Like that's the other thing. You got to find someone that'll listen at the end of the day. Cause you know, I, I've been told by so many patients like, well, you know, five doctors have told me I'm crazy. So I'm sure you're going to tell me the same. I'm like, no, you tell me what's happening and we'll figure out, you know, it may take a while. Some, sometimes yeah. if you've been through a certain situation for five or six years in pain, sexual pain, pelvic pain, menstrual difficulties, we, we often can't cure it right away. And so sometimes it's a journey that we have to go through, but, you know, and I usually collaborate with, you know, all sorts of people, therapists and, you know, uh, people from other areas of medicine. So I think that, you know, sometimes it becomes a teamwork approach, but yeah. as long as you have someone 
that, you know, kind of can lead the pathway to your recovery. I mean, it's totally possible. Amazing. I love that. So obviously step one, get somebody in your corner that you feel like you can talk to, but let's say we're not quite there yet. Is there, Mm -hmm. are there resources like books or, you know, Instagram accounts or anything that you're uh, outside of yours, of course, that like Mm -hmm. you would recommend to just start getting a, a deeper awareness around our vaginal health or sexual health or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, there's, um, definitely. So there's, a lot of like big organizations that put out some information for patients, like the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. We call it Ishwish. I'm a member and fellow for them. And so there's a lot of patient advocacy and education we do around, you know, sexual pain, vulvar health, um, all the different dysfunctions related to, to sex. Um, and it's a multidisciplinary approach. So I love that. Um, there's like the International Society for the Study of Vulvar Vaginal Diseases, you know, um, I think that's a very good society that, you know, can really get to the, you know, some people have recurrent BV or recurrent infections that cause them a lot of distress. And so, you know, some of these organizations put out a lot of good patient education, American College OBGYN for like general, you know, gynecologic obstetrics and fertility issues. They have a lot of patient educational resources. Um, and uh, also, you know, for women in midlife and beyond, there's like the North American Menopause Society, NAMS. They have a lot of great um, resources for women that are going through their changes of life that, you know, cause them a lot of distress. Um, There's the International Pelvic Pain Society, which I'm also part of. And so that talks to people, you know, with chronic pain related to possibly endometriosis and other conditions. So I think that's an important society, you know, and all of these organizations have their providers that are really vested in these areas and topics. So that you can do a provider search in your area. Oh, that's too. awesome! So you know, if you're not sure, and you're like, "Oh man, I, w- I don't live in Chicago. I'm gonna, you know, yeah, I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm in, you <laughs> know, where North Dakota. Yeah, so, you know, you can just look it up and say, okay, this is the first pers- the person that's closest to me that might be able to help me address my issues. That's amazing. I will put all of those links in the show notes for you guys, so you can just check them out and um and go from awesome. there and hopefully hopefully find someone that feels aligned in your space. Okay, one yeah. more question before we do fun fast questions. I'm not sure. Okay how much this is in your wheelhouse, but we haven't really talked a lot about birth control today, but thoughts on birth control and how specifically it impacts your hormones, generally speaking. Like I, I know we've talked about this in juxtaposition to my own personal health, but I'm just curious, yeah. generally speaking, how you feel about it. I mean, um, I think for instance, like the birth control pill is obviously like one of the like oldest tried and true methods of like, if your goal out there is to prevent a pregnancy and you can take a pill every day, it's great. I mean, obviously any intervention you have is potential, you know, risks and benefits too, right? Like, yeah, yeah, some women will have, some women develop acne, some women treat acne, some women, you know, get, you know, potential weight gain with injectables or other things, you know? So, I mean, it's a, it's a discussion to be had and, you know, there's always trials that you have to take with these pills if you're going to take them. Um, And there's no one pill that's good for everyone. That's why, you know, there's like a million different actual birth control pills out there that you could probably like navigate through and try to find the best fit for you based on what symptoms you're treating. Um, If you're looking at straight up, I just want to prevent a pregnancy. I don't care how, but I don't want to get pregnant in the next five or 10 years. The IUD is like pretty much the go-to or, you know, those next those sub those um, uh, um, implants that you can put under your arm. Yeah. Um, So, you know, those are like 99% effective, nothing better because it's not dependent on whether or not you take a pill every day. Right. So it's like, as long as it's in there and it's in the right space, 
you know, there's the hormonal and the non-hormonal methods that, you know, can be discussed based on, you know, what your issues are. There's a ring, the Nuva ring that you can put in the vagina and leave for three to four weeks. I mean, I think all of these, and um, there's actually a ring that you can use for a year now called Anovera. Mm. You just take it out every month for your period. And then there's patches that you can take weekly. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of just depends on who you are, what you're willing to do, how often you're willing to take it, and what your primary endpoint is. But if you want to use birth control, you know, to prevent pregnancy, these are what we have. And, you know, these are great. Some people out there really know their cycle. And they're like, you know what, I have a 28 day cycle. I ovulate on day 14. I know this. Yeah. And the rhythm meth works perfectly for them. I mean, I went through a time where I do, did the Nuva ring and then I did, you know, uh, the patch because I can't take a pill every day because I forget, you know, like, yeah. and so at the end of the day, I was like, oh, I really know my cycle. I can avoid whatever. And, you know, um, the other best method of birth control is to have kids and then you just don't have sex anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's so interesting because there's been a there's been big upheaval in the wellness space for the last like five years of like, get off birth control. Yeah. It's terrible for you yeah. and stuff. And I remember when I first came to you, like my reason that I wanted to get off the pill specifically and off hormones in general was because of my, you know, uh, potential and higher risk around breast cancer. But what you shared with me, which I didn't know, was that actually being on the pill for over 10 years helped reduce my risk for ovarian cancer, which is also linked to the BRCA gene. So mm-hmm. it was like I was helping myself without realizing it. And right. that was a huge thing that I would have never known if you hadn't told me that, you know, right. which is wild. Right. In itself. And you have to kind of watch the wellness space a little bit, like where you're getting your information from, because like, yeah, you know, there are a lot of people that, you know, maybe this is what happened to them and maybe they attribute their fertility issues to being on the pill. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I was on the pill for 20 years and now I can't get pregnant. And actually, you're 38 years old now and, you know, you've been on the pill since you were 18 and now you can't get pregnant likely because of age-related reasons, right? Like, yeah. but now, you know, you're blaming the pill. I mean, I get it. You know, a lot of us have to find a reason for, you know, what's happening and it's hard to navigate some of those things, especially there are a lot of, you know, influences out there that are great that can speak to their truth, but that's their truth and not everyone's truth. Completely. Right? Just so, by going like, in and seeing somebody who mm-hmm. has the background and information is super important at the end of the day. Right. Right. Okay. Let's do some fast fun questions before we get you out of okay. here. Okay. This is, we're pivoting. We're doing non, non-cervical vaginal health stuff. Oh, all right. Okay. okay. Well, yeah. Biggest okay. lesson this pandemic has taught you? Slow down. Yeah. I think, you know, slow down. I mean, I've just like, you know, I got a business, I got a practice, I got kids, I got in-laws, I got mutt parents and, you know, you got to get X to Y and you got to do this. I mean, you know, slow down and just enjoy things when you can, because at the end of the day, like 500 people, 500,000 people are dead from this, you know, virus, you know, you never know, you just never know, right, in life. And so if you're always on the go and you're never actually enjoying life, like, Awesome. It's hard, you know, because it's hard to enjoy life when there's nothing to do <laughs> except watch Netflix. Totally. But, you know, that's also like, you know, a blessing too is that, you know, like, you know, you get to spend, I mean, I would have never probably spent this much time with my husband or my kids because, you know, mm-hmm. between work and, you know, getting them to after school activities and, you know, running over to my parents or my in-laws because they're, you know, old and whatever, you know, so yeah. just like, you know, slow down. It's okay. I love that one. What is currently keeping you grounded? One thing one thing um I mean my husband keeps me pretty good there you go great answer (laughs) Uh, but yeah I mean what keeps me sane is probably like my peloton because you know there you go (laughs) (laughs) if I get my 20 minutes in my mind I love seeing those in your Instagram story (laughs) you're just like have a peloton and I feel great (laughs) (laughs) okay something that sometimes sometimes a gummy sometimes a gummy will do it (laughs) (laughs) 
God, you would. But I didn't say that out loud. No, yes, you did. I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, something that made you laugh recently. Oh my God. Um, I don't know. My kids make me laugh all the time, but I think that um, it's it's sort of seeing the interaction between the little one, the two year old, and and you know how she's kind of like a bossy little baby now so it's just funny to see her try to act like a you know like a sassy little girl I think she makes me laugh a lot too okay and last question what does it mean to you to live your fuck yes life oh wow I mean you know what Uh, for me I you know I think a lot about sort of like legacy and what it means like you know after the fact and you know what kind of imprint you want to leave on your kids and family so I mean I think that's one thing that's um you know, kind of sits on the back of my head a lot. Like, what am I going to, you know, is, is something I do going to make a difference to anyone, the world, whatever. So I, that's something I try to do. And I think that like, just, um, you know, just being there for people, my friends, my family, you know, my loved ones and, and just being present, you know, I think that that, because I think when you, when you do get involved in social media and other things, you, it really is a deterrent in some ways. I mean, like, just like, sometimes you're not present. So I think for me, like, that's it. I want to just be present for people. I want to have a, you know, sort of a legacy that I can leave behind. And, uh, you know, I want to enjoy life while I can. I love that. That's a beautiful answer. Okay. I know you have to pop off, but before you do, where can everyone connect with you if they want to follow you? Um, or, you know, if they are in the Chicago area and curious of working with your practice specifically, this will be on the show notes for you guys, but just so you can pop it on. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I uh, know I'm, uh, I am on Instagram as gyno girl. But I try to post when I can, but you know, my life gets in the way a lot. So I'm not like a, a daily poster and more like weekly or, you know, twice monthly. Anyway, um, that, and then, um, I just launched a YouTube channel called Gyno Girl TV. So I'm trying to do like, you know, a post once a week or once every two weeks. Um, and, um, I'm on Facebook. My, my practice is center for gynecology and cosmetics because I do um, some cosmetic work as well. Um, and so, um, uh, you can find me on Facebook or cgcchicago.com. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm kind of on Twitter too, but not much. <laughs> so like I said, that'll be in the show notes for you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. And this has been, thank so you, Amanda. You're an amazing person. You know, I'm just, I always tell people, I, I mean, I, obviously I can't tell people who you are because you know, like HIPAA compliant <laughs> yeah. you know, issues, but I try to try to be like, Oh, you know what? Why don't you, you know, if someone that does have like, cause you've given me permission to talk to people that, you know, like are bracket positive. And I'm like, follow her on Instagram, please. Like, she's so great. But I don't I'll necessarily say you're my patient. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's the best. I don't know her. But she-